We, we will pass the mic around so everyone can hear what the question is rather than trying to have Ryan repeat it each time. So anyone uh, want to begin? All right, Ryan, we're ready for you. Hey, sir. All right. So with the various admonitions from Timothy about a man who wants to, let's say there's a, a single man who wants to uh, possibly um, in the future maybe enter a pastor role um, of some sort um, or seek that, maybe God may be calling him to that. Um, how does that play into, play into with being married? I know that it's said in Titus he should be a um, wife of one, a husband of one wife. Um, and those various things, um, does it, is it like a requirement? Or like, what, what, is the, what are your thoughts on that? Well, since you have two elders, you should, I, I wish they were... I'll tell you my thoughts, and if they need to correct me next week, then they, uh, they can. I, I, don't, I don't... Okay, you'll do it tonight. That's fine. That's fine. It's probably more biblical, so... Uh, I, I take the qualifications in Titus and First Timothy to be speaking to normative situations, so to the situations people are normally in. So normally men are married with children, and when they are married with children, they ought to be a one-woman man, and they ought to be good fathers. And the reason I understand it that way is because, first of all, the Scriptures speak to normative situations. We talked about that this, this earlier tonight. The applications in Ephesians 5 are to husbands and wives and to slaves and owners and to uh, parents and children because that's, that's where most people were living. So the reason I say that is because if a man has two children and they die, he is not disqualified from the pastorate. If a man has a wife and she dies, he's no longer a one-woman man in one sense, right? But And so I, I don't think we want to create a situation where you've got Paul saying singleness is in some ways better for ministry, but you could never have a single pastor. Or a situation where, and I've seen this happen, where people get so rigid that if maybe a, a man is not able to have children, well, he hasn't, his children aren't faithful, so he can't be a, a minister. So I would say that uh, generally the men who are going to ascend to the office of overseer are going to be married men, and when they do, they ought to be faithfully married men, men who are the husband of one wife. I take that phrase to mean that they're faithful to their wives. And, uh, but, I, but I don't think it means that a man who wants to be a pastor better get a wife quick so that he can get into the ministry, or that we could never consider a man without a wife for the ministry. Charles, Dick, do you want to? We, we were both. Oh, that's right. I should have, that would have given me much more comfort if I'd remember that. So that's good. <laughs> Thanks. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. How do the principles of biblical womanhood that you gave yesterday apply to single women? Right, right. Well, I think um, I think you would have to take. First of all, you'd realize that 
in creation, this is what man and woman were made for. They were made these ways. But ultimately, what we were made for doesn't point forward to our marriages. Ultimately, it points toward a relationship in Jesus Christ. The relationship between Adam and Eve is ultimately a point, points forward to not marriage. Like, Believe it or not, but the married people in this room are not the fulfillment of Genesis 2. The fulfillment of Genesis 2 comes in the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. Yeah. That's who that points to. And so Ephesians chapter 5 uh, says that, uh, when a, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall... Uh, be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this is a great mystery. I am speaking of Christ in the church. And so in many ways we can see immediately, they're not all perfect, but in terms of being an intimate companion, a woman can be an intimate companion to the ultimate man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, in terms of being, uh, in terms of being uh, the, the sexuality stuff, I think changes in that the intimacy that sexuality points to, we can have with Jesus, but we're certainly not in any kind of bizarre relationship with the Lord. But I think those, those initial things of femininity are first of all in our relationship with the Lord. But then, here on earth, I think there are aspects where uh, women who are maybe not married could certainly display aspects of that. So in terms of being a nurturer, a mother... Uh, Paul says in uh, the end of Romans, he says, gives greetings to Rufus's mother, who is also a mother to me. So there's, there's really in the church, we are, we're, we're in a company of mothers and sisters. And so I think I may have mentioned the other day, but um, we have a, a wonderful woman who, at our church who is, is, is quite literally a counselor and a mentor and a mother to so many in the church. And yet she is married, but she has no children. So that's one context. And there are, Single, single ladies who are companions, not intimate companions the same way a wife would be, but certainly companions in terms of friendship to brothers in the church. Not necessarily in an isolated way, but just, just loving and encouraging in those ways. So I think you would take those, those, feminine, those feminine gifts and really uh, transpose them into the key of whatever opportunities in front of you that there are. So whether that's caring for the sick, you may not be able to care for your parents, but you may be able to care for sick in the church. There may be opportunities to, to care for brothers, to be a motherly figure in other people's lives, to younger children. So I can't delineate all the uh, different opportunities, but I think, I think those are some of, the, some of the ways that we do it. And we see evidence in the Scriptures that that was happening, that we're not so boxed in that if we're not married, we can't do any of this stuff. Is that, is that helpful? Okay, good. Really short. What is your opinion as far as I know? One of your points was uh, that to seek uh, seek a spouse in the context of a biblical community. Uh, what is your thoughts on long term, long distance relationships? Like, is that something that? Um, um, just what are your thoughts on that? Oh, they're they're great when they're great. So uh, what I mean is, uh, I mean all the other things would have to be applied. So if it's just first of all, there's this. This is why that you just can't make all kinds of rules that people can't fit. We see in the New Testament that life was not stable. Priscilla and Aquila were married, and I think we find them in five cities in the course of the New Testament. Once leaving Rome because of persecution, once facing persecution together, uh, Paul said they risked their necks for my sake. And so life was very transient at times in the New Testament. First Corinthians seven, they're under some present distress. 
which I think is really the whole age, is one of difficulty. So if you've got two people who are in good churches or who, if there only is one good church involved, that good church is trying to love them and care for them. Uh, you can certainly do pre-engagement counts. Pre, you can certainly do a, a relationship long distance. Um, we've done pre-marriage counseling in a manual over Skype because, uh, because the girl's in Florida and the guy is in, in Louisville. And so I, I just think you would, you would simply just use wisdom to make sure there's godly authority and counsel involved and both, both the man and the woman are, are getting to know one another. There can be about, about four months before I married my wife, I threatened to, live to leave to another city because I didn't think I could make it four more months without being married to her, but I did. And so I think so that sometimes long distance can be wise. Um, um, does that answer your question? That's good, thank yeah. you. Maybe just in general, just lot, lots of flexibility. We're mostly following the Spirit under biblical principles, not trying to create perfect circumstances. Go ahead, sister. Um, I think sometimes it might be easy for single people. I know for me, like to just totally cut off the idea of marriage and just not even think about it, like it's forbidden to even think about. And so, I guess um, my question is. What is what's right, um, especially for girls or young women, um, with like their thought life and their prayer life, um, without dwelling too much on it and holding on to it as an idol? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think I think Paul's language that if a person doesn't have this gift of self-control, they ought to be married, and and then Proverbs eighteen would certainly indicate that seeking is okay. And so I think, I think prayers along the lines of, Lord, please give me a spouse, can be perfectly appropriate. But if we know, sometimes our hearts can race ahead into discontent. And so if we know that's the case for us, I think we would really want to be first wrestling and saying, Lord, I will be you know, content with whatever you give me. I want and seeking Christ and to know Him more. And, uh, and, uh, and then just asking making sure that we're first asking for contentment in Christ and only out of that then asking, Lord, would you please give me a spouse? But I don't think it would be sinful. Um, I think you're really going to have to go through those situations as, as you see fit. And what I mean by that is this. If you find that the thought of marriage, it just begins to consume your prayer life to the point where you can't pray for the nations, or you can't pray for a brother or sister, but all you can ever think about is marriage, you may be at a place where you like have to say, Lord, I'm going to leave that one with you. You have to take care of that one because I can't seem to handle that right now without it really overriding and becoming an idol in my life. But if the Lord would give you grace to say, Lord, I am content to live and die for you in any circumstance, but I would love a spouse. Your Heavenly Father does not you know, does not despise that kind of request and desire from his children. The only, thing, the only thing I would just add to that is the important part, though, is to seek Christ and contentment in Christ first because one person pointed out contented people, contented single people become contented married people and discontented single people become discontented married people. Marriage does not change the contentment issue. It actually exasperates it. If you enter into marriage discontent, now there's someone to blame. You know, before it was just this vague feeling of discontent or maybe disgruntlement with God. But 
but when we have a spouse, there can really be a sense of which if you'd change or if you were different, I would be content. And of course, that's a lie. Does that, does that get at what you were asking? Good. Um, one thing I wondered if you might comment on, it seems like if when you say um, whether, it, like if you don't have self-control, you should marry. Some people get the idea, well, that means that I don't have the self-control. I'm defeated by lust. I, I give in to sin, and I can't help it because I'm not married. And right. maybe a little more on that. And, just, yeah. and then just also the idea that marriage does not cure lack of um, uh, self-control in that sense. Yeah, yeah, thank you. First, so look at First Corinthians 7 a little bit more carefully. I'm glad you asked because I felt once I was done that point that I hadn't made it especially clear. So I'm thankful for this. Um, I find this an extremely uh, nuanced question to answer, and I think that it's probably best answered. I will answer it, but I think it's best answered in personal counsel with individuals to find out exactly at what level they're struggling or those kinds of things. So I just maybe preface it with that. But there's a certain degree of sensitivity to where exactly a person is at that would require answering this the best. But I, I think that the, the first place we would start is there's never an excuse for sin. There's, there's never a good reason to sin. And so there could never be a sense in which, well, I struggle with self-control, therefore it's okay that I sin because I'm not married. But there is, there is also a sense in which a person can be determined to live holy and yet the fight against lust basically consumes them. That it, it takes all day, every day to get victory. And in that case, I would say that that person needs to stay holy, but they really ought to be pursuing marriage because they have an inordinate difficulty um, that, that, it, that, that marriage would help. So we're not saying there's an excuse but at the same time, uh, it does seem to me that there, there, there sometimes can be some degrees of stumbling that would really encourage marriage. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. And then uh, later on, uh, look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, so there's some degree of not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. And so, there. And this is where I, this is what I find the most difficult to, to say. I think there is a sense in which marriage should cure lust, and there isn't a sense in which marriage should cure lust. So, and and I, I think what I think saying that's based in the text. So, if he is not treating her properly, he should get married. If they have trouble with self-control, they ought to get married. There, there does seem to be a sense in which this will help, and. I think 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, does make this abundantly clear. Uh, now concerning the matters of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there is a sense in which sexual temptation, to, temptation of sexual immorality can be helped greatly by coming together in marriage. It's probably important to say, Fighting sexual temptation is never the only purpose for marriage. Uh, procreation, godly companionship, reflecting Christ in the church are always there. But nonetheless, in this context, Paul wants to highlight that there is an element in which a marriage will help in the fight against 
lust. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife should give to her husband. So there should be a regular coming together of them giving each other to them to each other. Like um, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does not. Does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you for your lack of self-control. So there is a sense if, which, if, they, if they keep coming together, there is greater hope that they will overcome temptation. If they don't keep coming together, Satan will tempt them and take them down. I think this is verified by Proverbs chapter 5. If you look at Proverbs chapter 5, um, you get a very similar theme that the intoxication of sexual joy in marriage is a help to overcoming sinful sexual desires outside of marriage. So, Proverbs chapter 5, uh, notice the word intoxicated. Verse 19, or we'll start in verse 18. Let your fountain, that's of course your wife, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And so there's two intoxications being held out in front of us. One, stay intoxicated with your wife. Two, don't be intoxicated with the forbidden woman. And so, I do think there's a sense in which uh, a person with, and this is a hard distinction to make, and this is where I really think you need personal counsel, but I do think that there's a sense in which people with normal sexual temptations who will occasionally stumble will be helped greatly by marriage. Uh, a guy who is trying to be holy, but, oh man, last month he fell and... I don't think that guy should be told, oh, marriage won't help you at all. It's, it, I think, I think the, the thrust of these passages is it will help you. It will help you to fight temptation if you come together regularly. Now, at the same time, you get some guys, as one person put it, they, they simply have developed a woman-hating mentality. They are consumed with pornography. They are absolutely in bondage to it. And the last thing they should think is that getting married is going to make that better. That is not, it's not going to happen. Uh, a bondage is not going to all of a sudden be broken through a marriage. But I, I do think there's enough in the text to say that the, the, some of the difficulties that come with living in a fallen world um, will, will be greatly helped by being in marriage. We, we, we counsel people, I counsel people regularly uh, that a husband ought to fight. We'll take the example of a husband, though it can happen both ways. A uh, husband ought to fight the billboards, the commercials, the, the allurements, the shops, the, the internet pop-ups, they ought to fight that all day. But one of the ways they ought to fight that is by coming home and saying to their bride, I have fought sexual temptation and the only person I will be with is you. You know what I mean? I refuse to be intoxicated anywhere else but with you, but we cannot not come together. Because if we do, we're, we're risking satanic temptation overcoming us in our lives. That, that seems to me to, to get some of the balances in the text. So, having the struggle, just to sum up, with self-control and not being married doesn't excuse you and let you be into sin, but it does point you in the direction that you ought to pursue marriage to help this. And then we should expect, based on, I think, the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 7 and Proverbs 5, that it actually will be a help. 
but we ought not to think that it'll be a cure-all. As if, as, if, uh, as if a marriage will all of a sudden make everything perfect, and especially in the case of someone with this deep bondage, uh, we ought not to expect marriage to help at all. Because that person is, is, not, is, is really in the grip of sin. You want to add anything to that? Well, just going along with that, we see the general principle, uh, like in Roman Catholicism, where you had monks and nuns, how it's a denial of the way God created man, and it leads to further immorality. So there's a general, you can see that clearly that there's a general principle involved there. Mm-hmm. Amen. As parents of teenagers, my husband and I often pray for God's will to be revealed to both our children as well as ourselves. But um, I wondered if you could speak to matchmaking. Um, it, it's sometimes awkward if there's a parental relationship and you realize there's ulterior motives there. Um, even with young children, sometimes we've run into people saying, well, someday I want our children to get together. And uh, when you're praying for God's will, it's really, what, what would be a godly response uh, when people are trying to matchmake and they don't seem to be concerned about God's will, but more about their will? Right. Well, you said one thing in the start of your question I want to respond to, too. One of the things I would encourage parents to do is not just pray that their kids have a godly spouse, but to pray that many children will have the gift of self-control for singleness. Uh, because Paul wanted more of those. And I remember I preached these sermons at Emmanuel, and one of the guys walked up to me and said, My dad, that's all he prays for me is that I get a spouse. And, and, and that doesn't seem to quite get the balance. So I think the prayer ought to be more like, Lord, if you've given them the gift of self-control, help them to use it to the glory of God. And if they're going to be married, give them a godly spouse. Um, it's hard to rule out matchmaking as inherently sinful. Uh, there is arranged marriages in the scriptures, and there are multiple cultures where arranged marriages... Uh, work and I don't think they're. I know they're foreign to North America, but I, I think it's hard to call them sinful. But they aren't sport. You know, they aren't entertainment, where I pair my three-year-old with your three-year-old just for fun. And so I think in that case, that there really would need to be a concern for for the good of the child. I, I've I think I've married people every which way you can marry. I've married people when they should have been married a lot earlier. Uh, married people when they were dating, married people when they'd courted, and married people when they were betrothed to one another by their parents. I've seen all of those happen. And fortunately, in the, in the situation of betrothal, uh, which was a lot like an arranged marriage, the parents were deeply concerned with the character of their kids, with the kind of personality their kids had, with the compatibility of their children. And when the parents uh, presented the children and, and talked to the children about the possibility of marrying each other, those kids were just thrilled with their parents' choice. So, uh, not, real, not really something I'm familiar with or plan to practice, but not something that you can uh, outlaw biblically or culturally in some cultures, but no, n- none of this is sport. Uh, dating that's, that's like sport is foolish, and parents playing around with their, their children's choices like it's sport is just pure folly as well. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, you spoke a lot about the uh, role of the father in a single woman's life and like how he should protect her. What if, like me, the only father 
she knows is God. And I mean, obviously he helps her a lot, but she doesn't have an earthly father to whom she can look. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, that's why I tried to make the point rather than um, you should seek to be married in the context of your parents. I tried to say you should seek to be married in the context of parents, pastors, friends, and godly community. You know, Jesus, Jesus uh, one time was told that his mother and brothers were outside, and he said, these are my mothers and brothers. You know, the, my, my disciples are my real family. And, and when we leave father and mother and brother and sister for the Lord, we receive a hundredfold mother and brother and sister and, and, and persecutions with eternal life. You know, so the, the really our ultimate family is the, uh, the, the, the family of God. And so I think, one, you would rely directly on your Heavenly Father in prayer, but your Heavenly Father has told you that in an abundance of counselors there is wisdom. And in abundance of counselors, there is safety. And so you would want to be seeking out godly men and women in the church. Older women are to teach younger women to, to, to what is good. So you'd want to be teaching, seeking out older women in the church to be a guide and a mother to you. And you'd want to be seeking out uh, godly small group leaders or, or oaks of righteousness in the church or pastors in the church to really counsel you and mentor you and help you make those kind of decisions and, and, and in those things, we're promised two things, proverbially. In an abundance of counselors, there's safety. And in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. And so I think and th- those are ways... They, those, aren't, those don't replace your Heavenly Father. Those are the gift of your Heavenly Father to you to guide you, you know, th- through, through the difficulties of life. Does that answer your question? Good. Ryan, Proverbs 18 talks about he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Mm-hmm. What is the female version of that? How do you see that? Right. Um, I, I do think it's right. Now, this is an area where we don't have explicit biblical teaching, but it does seem to me that the pattern of a man leading in marriage would call for a man initiating in the relationships leading up to marriage. So i just be honest that I'm inferring that. But, but it seems to make sense. It seems to me difficult to imagine, Ruth accepted, that a, that, a, that, a, that a woman would lead in the dating and the courtship, and then all of a sudden the day they got married, they'd switch roles. And so I think, I think it's wise for men to lead. Now, but having said that, what, what, is the, what is the place of a woman? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's no sin for a woman to put herself in the places where she's most likely to get married. So if, if uh, we, was actually, we were actually counseling with, uh, with a young lady at our church recently, and she said, well, I couldn't go to the singles hymn sing because I was babysitting. And I said, well, you, you could cancel babysitting occasionally and go to the singles hymn sing. I mean, you could, you could, you could make sure you're in those places where you're most likely to meet a man or a woman, and if, if, you're, if you're never putting yourself in those situations and, and wondering why God never brings anyone into your path, yes, God can get you wherever you are, but there is a course of wisdom that might say, go and be with the singles and go and be with those who might also be married. So I think that's wise. I personally don't see any sin in, uh, in, in a woman telling godly men and women in her life, older men and women, I'm not, that, that she's interested in being married. And, that, and so we, we, I've seen situations where a woman might tell a, a godly older couple that she's interested in being married if there's someone they want to introduce her to. 
that she would be open to that. Um, I think that's a lot different than the sort of grade six version where you're just whispering about the fact that you want to be dating something, somebody. It's more it's more a matter of it's more a matter of just, just letting know those those who are godly over you that you would that you would love to be married. So I think there can be in wisdom in, in making yourself available. I also think just you're you're most likely to meet the right kind of guys on the, in in discipleship. When a person loves the gathering of the saints together, and when they love the study of God's word, and they love the service of God's people, you'll be meeting the best kinds of men in that kind of context. And and men ought to be attracted to the girls who show up at those things. Those are, those are the girls. Those are the girls. I mean, if you're sitting there going, "Well, there's the Bible study girls," but I want those are the girls. I mean, those are the girls you want. Is the ones who love the word of God. Um, I, I got my, to know my wife a little bit from afar before I married her, but one of the things she was notorious for was I knew she was up in the girl's dorm memorizing the book of James, and I heard that whenever she counseled anyone, she used the Bible. I thought, that's the one for me. <laughs> that, that, that sounds great. And so I think, I think just going hard after Jesus in every area is, is the place, first of all, it's just the best place for you if you stay single for 50 years. But it's also the best place to meet the best people. Yeah. Does that does that answer your question, or am I missing part of it? Or yeah, that's that's good. I just wondered on the proactivity of the of the woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably primarily putting herself in the right place at the right as much as possible, trusting in the Lord. So I have one more question. You may have run into this, but um, just, you know, over the past several years, I guess, I've seen um, Christians who have met um, their spouses online. So do you have any thoughts on those types of situations? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's inherently sinful. It's it's hard. I would I would be I would be hard pressed to rule it out. But I would be very eager to know that the whole process was done seeking godly counsel, and then that if there was any contact, then there was plenty of personal knowledge from parents and pastors and and counselors. And so I think it's it's sort of like the one like if it's long distance there may be different situations that are different but once once the differences are assessed then let's get these things under the means of grace let's get these things analyzed by the means of grace there, there, i mean so i i would say not my preference but if i'm honest i've seen it happen twice and it worked both times so i, I can't it's hard it's hard to say never and strictly forbidden but I would want to, I mean, I'd want that guy, once he's identified on the computer, I'd want him in my living room really quick for a good, thorough talking to. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and to, uh, to really begin to a bib- do a biblical assessment process at that, at that point. See you tomorrow, Lord willing.